So to be safe, if you met someone and you were talking to them, you'd say you instead of thou because you didn't want to insult them. It is so funny to me that we're having the same conversation that we've had for centuries about how to show respect and the same thing that has driven the change in pronouns for the last thousand years, showing respect for someone previously invisible. So they is simply the new frontier of pronoun respect. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Dr. Valerie Friedland discusses her new book, Like Literally Dude, and demonstrates the deep cultural and historical significance of what we might call bad English. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. Valerie Friedland joins us today. Dr. Friedland is professor of linguistics at the University of Nevada, Reno, and author of the recently released book, Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Valerie. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Although, Sam, I do have to say something because if I don't, hordes of Nevadans are going to beat me. And uh, it's in Nevada, it's Nevada, not Nevada. Got it. They're they're very touchy about that over here. So Uh, I've heard like like Oregon and Oregon and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, you know, it really is my my uh, personal safety that would be in trouble if I didn't say something about it. So I thought I should call that out right away. An important pronunciation correction. And we're that's that's the sort of thing we're all about here at Speaking of Language. (laughs) Uh, So to get things started, we always like to ask our guests about their background and path with languages. What does that look like for you? Well, you know, it's an interesting question because I, of course, you know, when I was a little kid, I didn't even know that people that did what I do now existed. You know, if Mm. you told me later... Uh, that I, later I would be a theoretical linguist. I probably would have cried, actually, around five. <laughs> <laughs> but my parents are both non-native speakers. So they came to the United States um, when I right before I was born, actually. Mm-hmm. And so I was born here. Um, but I'm the only one in my family actually born in the United States. So my father's Belgian, uh, but he was a Holocaust survivor. So after the Holocaust, he actually was sent to Israel and grew up in Israel. So he... Uh, spoke French, that was his first language, and then Hebrew and Yiddish, huh. and then English that he learned, you know, on the way over to this part of the world. And my mother was French-Canadian, so she spoke both French and English, but mm-hmm. both of them had French as the first language. So I grew up in a household that there were there were so many different languages around me, and um, whenever my parents fought or talked about things they didn't want me to understand... <laughs> They switched to French. So that made me really interested in language <laughs> early on because yeah. I, you know, I wanted to know where the ice cream was. You know, <laughs> I was like, I, I got to figure this out. So, you know, I think my interest in language was piqued very early, but unconsciously by having mm-hmm. parents that spoke a different language than everybody else around me. And I grew up in the South. And at the time, I'm not going to age myself, but I'm not a spring chicken. <laughs> and at the time, that I grew up, uh, that I was, you know, in my in my adolescent period, it was not very rare in in the city I grew up in, with, which was Memphis, Tennessee, to have foreign parents. It was, mm. you know, uh, most people were from the South, several generations, and maybe they'd moved from other parts of the South, but there weren't many outsiders, and we were definitely outsiders. 
So I think that experience of being treated as someone that was different because of my parents' accents, Mm -hmm. uh, and not bad necessarily. People didn't treat me badly, but it was always something they brought up. So when Mm -hmm. friends would come to my house, instead of, you know, oh my God, you've got cool toys and, you know, this is awesome. It was like, (laughs) oh my God, your parents talk so funny. Uh, So it it really irritated me uh, at a young age that, I couldn't just be who I was. I had to be this person with these weird talking parents. Um, or people would make fun, not make fun, but they would call out the way my mother said my name, which was Valerie. She would call mm, my name. She'd uh-huh, say Valerie. Yep. So I don't have a single friend in my early life that didn't say Valerie whenever <laughs> they talked to me just to kind of call it out. So, you know, I don't mean, I know they didn't mean anything badly by it, but as a young kid, it to me meant I'm different. I'm socially different. And so- sure. That experience, having parents that were non-native speakers that exposed me to languages, and then having this experience where not only were they non-native speakers, but people noticed it and called it out all the time and made social associations with it, really piqued my interest in the social side of language, why we react to language the way we do, what it means, Mm. where it comes from, and all that jazz. So when I went to college and started taking classes, and I took a class on language and the social world. I think it was called Language and Society. It really rocked my world because it was the first time I could have the language and the knowledge to articulate the feelings that I'd had as a kid about how language impacted me. So that's a long answer to a short question, but that's that's how I came to be where I'm at. Awesome. Well, and you just mentioned that this class on language and society actually piqued your your interest in linguistics at large. And you are um, an expert in that in that field now, um, have published widely in this area. Um, what does your day-to-day work entail? Well, you know, I obviously teach, which is something that I really enjoy doing. I have actually been on a fellowship with the National Endowment for the Humanities this huh. year, so I've not taught, and I'm looking forward, actually, and don't, I'm not admitting that to anybody I work with, but I am looking forward to going back into the classroom <laughs> next fall because I really do miss that engagement interaction and learning about language through the eyes of the students. So that's Mm -hmm. part of my day-to-day work. But the rest of my work actually is doing research. Um, I'm sort of an experimental sociolinguist, which is a fancy word for I go out and actually do sort of experiments with language and with people. Um, Mm -hmm. So part of that is just recording naturally occurring conversation. So I'll go out, or field workers, a lot of times field workers, go out and they record conversations with speakers. They also have, I prepare materials that they'll have people read because I'm looking for particular features of speech. So if Mm -hmm. you have just a normal conversation, it's hard to get those features. But if you have prompts or things for them to read, it's easier to get what you're looking for. So I'll have materials like that. And then we sometimes bring them in a speech lab and do you know, we set them up, we give them injections set and shock them. No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> we don't do things like that. We simply put them on a computer and we will ask them to respond to different prompts or we'll test their perception of different sounds and sort of play sounds for them and see what they hear um, so that we can get a better understanding. And we do this all over the country. In fact, my latest mm-hmm. research project was a project that encompassed about nine field sites throughout the United States. So we did it everywhere. So that allows us to compare how Mm -hmm. do people talk and how do people hear based on their dialects in all these different areas. So that's essentially what my day-to-day work looks like. I do research. I talk to people. I measure 
you know, the way that people respond to things. And then I analyze them in a lab. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, you also co-authored the book Sociophonetics in 2021. Could you explain this branch of linguistics for our listeners? Sure. So my um, specialty as of late has been looking at speech sounds particularly and sort of their social meaning. And that is the area of the branch of study called sociophonetics. And that's where we take instrumental readings of speech of sounds in particular, and then we can look at the waveform, and from different measures of that waveform on a computer, we can actually tell things about those speakers. Um, mm. We can we can tell social things, actually, about those speakers, because we notice that the waveforms change depending on <laughs> your gender, depending on your age, depending mm. on where you're from, for example. I mean, it's actually quite fascinating yeah. what yeah. these little waveforms can tell us. Um, and one of the things I'm interested in is how we can measure the changes that differ among us socially and also how we can try to track how changes occur by looking at these very subtle shifts in where phonetic or sounds occur in in the waveform. So, I, you know, it's kind of complex if you don't have a phonetic mm -hmm. background, but it essentially is taking the the um, aspects of phonetics, which look at how speech sounds are created and looking at how those speech sounds are created in a social context. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially what sociophonetics is. So I think maybe an example would help uh, that someone, if that doesn't have any training, could could recognize. So yeah. think about the word for bag, B-A-G, in you know all the different dialects of American English. So if you're in New York, you bag your groceries. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? If you're in LA, you bog your groceries. Hmm. Uh, if you're in the South, you bag your groceries. Or you might even bag your groceries. So hmm. that's a phonetic change because the only difference among those three examples is the vowel. And they're all the same vowel. Every speaker, whether you're from New York or LA or Memphis, is saying the same vowel in their head. That's what they're aiming for. But it's phonetic realization, meaning the way it comes out sounding, which is phonetics, uh, acoustic phonetics is different. And I can hear it as just an average everyday speaker. And I yeah. hear it as an accent, right? But as a phonetician, I hear that as, you know, a raising of the A vowel mm. in the North, a backing of the A vowel in LA, and sort of a no shift of the A vowel with diphthonization for a big fancy word in the <laughs> South. So I can name what's happening, but as a speaker of English, you can hear what's happening. Mm. And that change is predicated on social and linguistic forces that have operated differently in each part of the United States. And, and that's a really interesting question of how did that happen what's happening and where is it headed? And those that's what people like me look at. Great. Very interesting. Another project that you've been working on was your newest book, which actually just came on the market yesterday. Um, the title, Like Literally Dude, Arguing for the Good in Bad English. And this is a podcast, but I do see the book right behind you there on, on oh, your yes. credenza. It's a, it's yes. a very very fun cover as well. Yeah, it so, was a fun book. A fun book, yeah. Oh, well, and it's it's very entertaining to read as well. So, as a diligent learner of English myself who loves prescriptive grammar, <laughs> what good is there in bad English? Well, it's funny that you say that because my mother, uh, obviously, who was a second language learner of English, is also uh, a person that loves to edit. 
<laughs> she, if, I, if I send her anything I've written, it always comes back with red yeah. circles because she, <laughs> she's also a learned sort of prescription. And so, you know, the, the thing is about prescription is that we, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's just an alternative view of language. But instead of viewing it as just one way to look at language, what we've learned from a very young age is that it's the view to take mm. about language. And it's really not. It's actually a question of accuracy and equity because if we take a scientific view of language, it's completely different than what the prescriptive view tells us. And prescription is social preference, not scientific, linguistic, or historical preference, right? It, it doesn't tell us the history of the word. It doesn't tell us why we say the things we say, mm -hmm. and it doesn't tell us how they came to be and whether they've always been disliked. When we look at linguistic views of grammar, what a linguistic grammar is, it's actually about the cognitive and physiological structures that underlie all languages and what is possible and impossible in languages. So we can look at language from a linguistic standpoint and understand why features that might be prescriptively disliked come into being. And most of, you know, 100% of the time, actually, it's driven by underlying linguistic forces that are only bad in one language. So multiple mm. negation, for example, is a great example of that. Mm -hmm. Many, many languages around the world have multiple negation, which is something where you have two negative particles in a sentence to make something negative. So mm -hmm. a good example would be je ne parle pas le français, right? Where I have two markers mm -hmm. of something negative. Well, many, many languages do this. And in English, it's prescriptively bad. In fact, it is as very stigmatized if I say I don't do nothing. Right, which is basically the exact same thing. It's considered really bad and st strongly stigmatized. But actually, multiple negation has only been bad in English since the 17th century. It was huh. an older form of English to do so. And this idea that somehow it's a bad feature, that it's um, you know incorrect, is actually based on a, uh, a, a wrong understanding, a misguided understanding of what language is. So I think that's, as a prescriptivist, I could say, yes, sure, in written English or in very, very formal context, you might need to adhere to these prevailing social preferences because that's what will be you know, better for you in the long term as a speaker in those contexts. But from a accuracy standpoint, most of our beliefs about what are bad are actually not real. They're not based on any objective badness. I think the key is for a prescriptivist, the difference is I I can argue that I dislike something, but disliked and bad are two completely different things. Mm -hmm. And if you understand the history and the mm -hmm. linguistics behind yeah. the forms that we love to hate, you'll understand that that is true. Interesting. One of the particularly interesting takeaways from your book is that women and children are agents of change when it comes to language. And I'm hoping you can elaborate on that. Sure. Uh, I love that idea that we have these people that we tend to dislike in terms of how they speak being the ones that have actually brought us to where we're speaking today. I think mm -hmm. I love this this reality of, of our world, um, that this is the way it is. So if you think about a lot of the speeches that we love to hate today, I'm thinking here of, you know, using literally, non-literally, saying like <laughs> all the time, vocal fry, all those lovely things saying gonna instead of will. Though all, all those little things, who is the person that we imagine saying those? It's rarely the old white dude. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. 
Yeah, it's almost always somebody young. You know, most of the things we dislike about language are associated with young speakers. And a lot of them, like vocal fry, like literally, like um, intensifiers more generally, totally so, those kinds of things, uh, like using like, are associated with not just young speakers, but young women particularly. So I think it's funny that what we've done is misconstrue that as meaning that they don't know what they're talking about, right? Mm. That they're bad speakers, when actually what it is, in fact, historically, is that they are the progenitors of change. Mm. That any uh, most things that we're doing today in language came to be norms, not because that's the way it's always been, but because women and children were at the helm. Not only women and children, but women and children and generally um disenfranchised groups or mm. subcultures because yep. oh, yeah. those are the groups that are freer to change because they're not the ones that control the strings and power that try to keep things as they are. Mm. So whenever you have um, standardization and codification and you control the institutions, and that means you're, you know, the you're in charge of the educational system, you're in charge of the judicial system, you're in charge of the corporate system, it will benefit you to have people talk like you. So mm -hmm. you're going to prescribe norms sure. that sound like you. But when you're not those people in power, when you don't have that kind of benefit from those norms, you are freer to let natural inherent linguistic tendencies that, that are part of all language interact with the social needs and wants that you have and uh, elicit change. And even back from the earliest studies we have from a sociolinguistic perspective, what I'm thinking here of uh, Louis Gachat and his study in 1905 in a mm -hmm. Swiss village in Charme, Switzerland, he found that French was changing in that mm -hmm. village extra, you know, quite extensively. Uh, the consonants were changing, the vowels were changing, and guess who he found heading those changes? Young speakers, but not just only young speakers, young female speakers. And what's interesting in almost every major study of sound changes or of novel changes, and I'm thinking here of things like uh, the shift from must to have to, the shift from will to going to, the shift from saying someone and um, no one instead of somebody and nobody, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. use of weight as a metaphor extension of waiting as a discourse marker. All of these changes in modern studies and many, many more find the exact same pattern. Who's in the lead? Young people. And which group in young people? Young women. So what that tells us is this isn't a mistake or an error. They're not doing bad things with their language. What's happening is they're actually the innovators. And mm -hmm. so what happens is they're about a generation ahead of everybody else. And what happens when someone's doing something different and it's not the norm, we notice them. And we usually don't like change. We have negative attitudes towards language change in general since about the 18th century mm -hmm. with the rise of what's called the mm -hmm. complaint tradition, which it really <laughs> didn't exist before that. And so we despise that. We don't like it. We <laughs> treat it as bad when actually you wait about... 10, 20 years, that's what all we're, of us are going to be saying. And mm -hmm. this is recurrent in the history of language. So, you know, uh, when you say second person, singular or plural, you use the you pronoun. And you mm -hmm. use that pronoun whether you put it in the subject or the object case. Well, if in 14th century you didn't do this, right, you no. would have the, you'd have thou for subjects and the for objects in singular cases. So if it was just one you you were talking about, you'd have ye for subject plural and you for subject object if you were talking to several yous. Mm -hmm. By the 17th century, all we had left was you. And I guarantee you 
that there were a few parents complaining about their kids' use of you instead of thou, right? And in fact, um. we do find in the <laughs> in, in grammars of the time, we do find grammarians in the very, very first grammar books written um, by like Robert Loth and th- people like that. They were complaining about this shift. The same mm-hmm. way we hear complaints today that mm-hmm. you is not what you should be using there. But not only was you a replacement of, you know, the thou, the situation, but you was also an objective case pronoun all of a sudden occurring in subject case. So mm-hmm. the same way that we get upset today when people say, him and I went to the store, mm-hmm. right? You is exactly that same violation. But does anybody walk around going, oh my God, a you speaker. Oh, you're so crass and vulgar. You do. Okay. Well, <laughs> from, now, from now on, you won't, right? <laughs> We've, you've affected change today on our podcast. Uh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> Actually, I think we should start a movement back to ye. I kind of like ye. Ooh, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Well, and feel, actually, it feels very good for, for scolding people, which is. <laughs> ye shall. Ye shall do this. <laughs> uh. But Valerie, speaking of these pronouns, can you talk a little bit more about gender, gendered language, gendering in language? You talk in the book about um, the pronoun they um, and and how things are changing in society right now in that regard. Absolutely. So what's interesting is, you know, these changes in our modern pronouns that get people hot and bothered are actually just part and parcel of of how pronouns have evolved through history. So I think the you yeep example is a perfect example of the fact that our pronouns aren't stable things. And we think of them as being stable because we're used to what we're doing right now, but they actually have changed a lot in the history. Um, And just actually one interesting aside about the you ye shift is guess who led that shift from using ye in subjects and you in objects? Well, at this point, I was about to say, at this point, we're guessing women. Yes, I was giving you a subtle hint there. Women, 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 right? So women and other subcultures that have been left out of language, and here I'm thinking about particular non-binary cultures Mm. in the modern age, have always been progenitors of change when they need to be more visible in the language or they need to recognize themselves in the language. And if you look at the history of our third-person pronouns in English— Uh, It has left a lot out from uh, the history of that pronoun. So if Mm. you look back into Old English, in fact, they is not even the original pronoun in English for that. So we start with heo. Uh, Heyo, I think, would be more the accurate Old English pronunciation, but my Old English is kind of rusty. (laughs) And it was basically the pronoun paradigm for whether you were saying he, she, or they. You would use Mm. that in both singular and plural. Uh, well, the problem with HEO, and it also had different cases that it would take, is if you're using the same pronoun for all three, and they had subtle differences, they start to sound the same, then it's very confusing who you're talking about. And if mm-hmm. you look back at, at poetry from that era, a lot of times you find that you'll have a pronoun in that poetry. It's hard to tell what gender you're referring to. And um, there are some, pro- pro- some poetry where it's clear it's sort of a man talking about a woman, which typically most of the poets from at that period that we have records of were men, but they're using the pronoun that would refer to a male because there really wasn't a consistent way to have that division. So we needed something else in the language to make visible this difference in gender at the time. And of course, you know, non-binary identity wasn't a thing back in, you know, 1200, but it was a thing that we wanted to be able to talk about men and women separately. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also wanted to have third person 
that was plural that could also be separated out. So this sort of pushed the need to develop new pronouns. So she came into being to talk about women. Hmm. Uh, there are really interesting theories about where that came from, but that's for a different podcast. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, it, it, it arose basically to meet this need to refer to women in a way that set them aside from the way we referred to men. So instead of he, we could have she. And then also they was borrowed in from Old Norse. So it's actually mm-hmm. the Vikings I got to love those Vikings that brought us the pronoun that we know and love today as they. And in fact, in Chaucer, which is, I think, lovely uh, to look at, you can see that this change was coming into the language because Chaucer uses they, the Old Norse pronoun, in subject position, but he still uses the Old English hem for accusative case, for object. So if you see, you can see the alternation there in an old text, right? Much of them have been modernized. So you have to go back to true old text, old manuscripts, and you can see him alternating between they and him because you can see the change in progress, which is, I think, really cool that you can see that from so many years ago. So I think what I'm saying here, long, long story short, is that our pronouns have been unstable because there have been needs socially that have not mm-hmm. been met by the existing pronoun paradigm. And then, of course, there's that whole shift from thou to you, which happened in, a little later when in, in about the 14th to 17th centuries when that shift was happening. And that came about because of our contact with French and this new um, sort of social uh, recognition that came with vowing somebody. So before the difference between thou and ye was simply singular plural. But when we got introduced to sort of power semantics from the French who came over with the Norman invasion and basically controlled Britain for a number of centuries, they did a lot of two vooing, which meant they would talk to intimates or people below them using two pronouns. And then they would talk up using a vu pronoun. So if you had someone higher in status, like your boss or your mm-hmm. um, your parents, you would use the vu pronoun with them. So it wasn't singular plural. It was instead about your respect, about yeah. respect. Well, what happened is as the norms of society changed in the early modern period and society became more egalitarian because it really wasn't before. I mean, personal freedom and having, you know, social equality was definitely not a thing <laughs> until the early modern period and even more as we get to the modern age, uh, it became an insult to thou somebody because it was calling into question their relative re- relationship to you. So to be safe, if you met someone and you were talking to them, you'd say you instead of thou because you didn't want to mm. insult them. Huh. Again, what was it about? Respect. So let's take a few centuries of a leap forward and we get to this whole, you know, brouhaha, uh, one of my favorite words, about, <laughs> <laughs> about singular they. And it is so funny to me that we're having the same conversation that we've had for Mm. centuries about how to show respect. And the same thing that has driven the change in pronouns for the last thousand years, showing respect for someone previously invisible, Mm -hmm. is the same thing that's the argument we're having today. So they is simply the new frontier of pronoun respect. And it has one respect has won out in the pronouns that we choose at every stage in the history mm-hmm. of our language. And we see just a repetition of that today where respect for others' visibility is what's driving this need for a new pronoun, which has been singular they. Because singular mm-hmm. they used in just an epicene or a unisex way has been used for 700 years to solve that problem. So it was yeah. a very organic development 
solving the problem of respect today for invisible communities. Fantastic. Um, so talking about respect with pronouns, um, let's talk a bit about your boss, the work environment. What are some of the takeaways of your book for people professionally? We already use fillers like um on our podcast and in everyday conversation all the time. Uh, but can I start calling the dean like dude? <laughs> well, I, I would say that I'm going to preface that by uh, sure when you're out for drinks and possibly <laughs> when you're not. You know, so the, <laughs> the, the question about how we communicate in professional arenas versus in private arenas is a very interesting one. And I think the norms for that have shifted over the last 30 years or so, where we're becoming more informal in our workplaces. And mm. I think um, we're valuing connection over status, which is mm. really what a lot of times workplaces have been about, showing status differences rather than making connection and having good, solid, true communication. And what I think is happening is as we see um, status barriers break down even more, differences among people sort of be pushed away, we are valuing connection and community in our conversations over status and prestige of the more traditional type. So the answer to that question in terms of can you call your boss dude is hell yes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But you might want to be careful depending on the sort of cultural climate of your workplace. And what what I mean by that is what we see in in general in life, but also in particular in corporate climates, is um, we tend towards homophily, which is a very fancy word for saying shared values, beliefs, and thoughts and ideas. The more alike we are, the more we tend mm-hmm. to find ourselves drawn to each other, which is great when we're trying to find friends, but actually quite negative when we're trying to find valuable employees that might bring diverse views to our workplaces in the sense of um, if everybody is like us, then we're all going to have the same ideas and we might not think outside the box. But if we have a huge diversity of opinions, if we value connection but not similarity to the same degree, then we can actually probably get some insights that we wouldn't have thought about. A lot of times in the workplace, we judge people on the language they bring. And a lot of times with young people, this has been them feeling self-conscious about Mm. the way they talk. And Mm. a lot of my students bring this to me, that they feel self-conscious about things like vocal fry and the voice, which a lot of young mm. women have adopted to sort of sound urban and professional today, or at least that in their circle, that's what mm. it, it means. Or saying like a lot, which actually a lot of people do. If you look at almost everybody's speech, we use like. What we don't use it in, yeah. is in the expansive three different ways that like is now being used by young speakers for three different purposes. So when you use one word for three different purposes, it's going to sound like it's happening a lot, although... It Mm. is doing different work. We are finding that young people are being told that's wrong and that's bad and that their speech is negative, um, which that is sort of pushing them out of jobs and um, from contributing in ways that they might actually provide some valuable insight. So from Mm. a professional perspective, I think by pushing people out because they don't sound like us, what we do is we are dismissing their language by dismissing their ideas Mm. And what we should step back, at, I think, in the value of looking at from the perspective I have in my book, is that once we understand that these are just these are just preferences that we have that are socially driven and not true statements about someone's intellectual worth or value or their abilities, 
then we can step back and say, am I, am I dismissing what they're saying? That might be a really good idea because I just cringe at the way they say Mm -hmm. it, you know? Um, So if they, you know, start off a sentence with irregardless, is that so (laughs) annoying to me that I'm like, oh my God, you stupid idiot. (laughs) I'm not going to listen to what you say. And I think a lot of people do that. So professionally speaking, if you can sort of try to embrace these features as just different rather than Mm -hmm. bad, and yep. understand the history behind them and the value that they might serve for younger speakers. I think you actually open the door to really good ideas that those people can bring forward. I think the other thing that people can get from reading my book is that a lot of people that have these features in their own speech and feel self-conscious about them, and I, I think a lot of people do, or they've been judged in professional context, can both feel valued for their speech instead of disvalued, but mm-hmm. also... I think once you understand how they work, because we, we're not taught that, we're not taught that like has a purpose and it's very no. sort of, it's very patterned in its distribution. It happens in very certain circumstances. So for example, we see it used a lot as an approximating adverbial, which makes it sound a lot better, doesn't it? When you talk about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where you use it instead of about. So you'd say something, he was like 12, I think when that happened versus he was about 12 when I think that happened. So if I'm really self-conscious about my speech and I'm worried about how I'll be taken in an interview, having that understanding of where like is used gives me the power then to focus on every time I would use a like there, I'll stick in and about instead. Mm. In this one context where it might make me feel better about how I'm being received. Now, personally, I think it's bad to feel self-conscious about your speech when it's actually just sure. a beautiful you know, case of evolution. But I'm a realist too, and I understand that we are in context, we'll be judged and I want to give p- people the power to understand mm-hmm. how speech works so they can alter their speech in those contexts. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. Um, Valerie, many of our listeners are language teachers. What are some implications for them with regard to language change and use after they read your book? Well, you know, that's a great question, I, I think, because um, some of the value for non-standard, or it's not, sorry, non-standard, non-native speakers is that they will understand where these are appropriate and where they're not. I think, you know, it's a great conversation to have mm-hmm. about these are great features. These signal solidarity. These are about communication. This will help you make connection with native speakers by using these features. But Let's have a conversation around what the idea of of more informal languages versus more formal language, because I think one of the problems, and I certainly know that my dad felt like this was true of his learning of English, um, because he learned English as a second language learner, and he learned it very formally, Mm -hmm. he could come across as kind of stiff Mm -hmm. um, to native speakers at first. I mean, he's been here long enough now that he is not stiff at all, though I will say I've never heard him utter like, but... (laughs) 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 But he does, you know, I think he could come across that way because he had learned a very formal form of English, and that's what we learn when we teach language because we're teaching sort of the book form. But very few of us in real life, even in jobs, talk like the textbooks. So I think this offers a great conversation to have with your language students as a language teacher about where we can use these forms, how are they used, what are they what do they mean when a native speaker uses them? Because this is not something that's taught. So the first time you experience mm-hmm. someone saying like all the time, it might be confusing. When mm, someone's sure. using literally, non-literally, it might be confusing. This <laughs> offers a really good sort of step-by-step approach to understanding why that means what it does in that context. So I think those are the two most valuable takeaways mm-hmm. for non-native um, English teachers. 
or English teachers spe- teaching non-natives. Yeah. Yep. Fantastic. So, Valerie, uh, where can our listeners find Like Literally Dude? Well, they should be able to find it anywhere they buy books. Of course, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere that you get your books. It should be hopefully everywhere, even in Target. Yeah, there we <laughs> so, go. Easy to find, easy to find. Um, but they could also just go to my website, which is just ValerieFriedland.com. I'm sure you're going to put that in show notes somewhere. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and it will have a lot of information about the book, but it also has information about my research and, and sort of some of the things I've talked about. And also I have a blog that I do monthly on Psychology mm-hmm. Today that covers a lot of different topics. And that's actually international in reach. So it has some topics that are for you know both native and non-native speakers. So it has all sorts of topics that I cover there. Uh, and people can find links to those as well. But um, definitely the book is available anywhere. Fine books are sold. <laughs> or even not fine ones, but hopefully <laughs> hopefully, this is in the first category. <laughs> no, absolutely. This is a very fine one. Wonderful. Well, thank you. That, that means a lot. Thanks. Well, Valerie, we could keep chatting for hours here. But before we sign off, we would like to ask you to share a word in a language that you speak, you love, you are learning, you may want to learn, that makes you laugh. Oh, I love this question. This is such a fun question, but I think it's a little mean of you to only give me one. Oh, you can. Okay. You can have two. (laughs) Okay. Well, feeling very generous today. Okay, good. Well, I, I, so I think you'll appreciate this one is one word and it's German in origin that I just, I can't say, I can't order it without a giggle is pumpernickel. Really, who thought of pumpernickel? It's just, I, I think it meant something like bumpkin, um, actually, in oh. German originally. I think that might be the origin. Oh. I'm not 100% sure about that, but I just love the word pumpernickel. But um, the other word that actually in English, I, I have a really close friend, and this word drives her nuts. So I have gr- a great time along with her husband torturing her with it. So it makes me laugh when I think <laughs> of it because I think of these fun experiences when we're having dinner. I'm like, this is such moist chicken. Uh. <laughs> the word moist, dry, I just love it because so many people hate that word. I don't yep. personally, I don't personally at all, um, but it is just a word that seems to really irritate people. So my my, my dearest friend, Christine, she just can't stand it. And she can't stand it in any context, whether it's moist cakes, moist chicken, or, you know, moist um, cloth. She just can't stand the word. So I think pumpernickel and moist have to be my top winners in that category. We approve. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> well, Valerie, thank you so much for speaking of language with us today. Absolutely. It was a blast. Thanks for having me. Next week, Kuhn van Horp will explore the myths and realities surrounding task-based language teaching with us. Until then... Auf Wiederhören! The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. 
As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode. Is there anything that you wanted to say that we didn't get to? No, I feel like that was, you know, run to the bookstore. No, I really, other than that. (laughs) 